can say a hearty hallelujah to Jesus paying it all. What a God we have. I invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. join our hearts together in prayer. Father, help us now as we consider your amazing grace as we continue to worship you in the word. Help us to recognize just how great you are by the things you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think in your mind of a mountain scene. In fact, I want you to pretend in your mind right now that you're staying in a cabin and you're walking out the back door onto a porch where there are some wonderful rocking chairs and you have your morning coffee. And you're looking out over the mountains and you see the sun rising and you see the birds in the trees. Have you seen a scene anything like this? Do you think, wow, look at what God has made. And think about it, He did that from nothing. From nothing. God spoke the word, and it was done. From nothing, he makes the most beautiful scenes. And you know, friends, from nothing, he makes a masterpiece. And this morning, as we consider Ephesians chapter 2 in ever so brief a fashion... I want for us to stand in awe of God's work, God's work that is a masterpiece, God's work of taking people like us who are nothing, in fact, enemies of the cross of Christ, taking us from enemies and enmity and a a pattern that was heading us toward eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And taking us from that condition and making us sons and placing us in his family and giving us a hope and making us part of his kingdom and his glorious future. It's amazing. This is the work of God. God is a creator. And we want to talk about God's amazing masterpiece this morning. First of all, we'll note very briefly in verses 1 through 9 that God has taken believers in Jesus Christ from death to life, or from dead to alive. Notice here, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read it the way that it is in truth. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And so the picture that Paul points out in verses verses 1 through 3 is that we were dead and hopeless and helpless. Nothing. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy. Mercy is God's willingness to take away from us our sin, the guilt of our sin, and the punishment of our sin. To take it away. God, who in His mercy, what did He do? Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Grace? Grace? What's the difference? Grace is God infusing us with something. Mercy is God removing sin, the guilt of sin, and the punishment of sin from us. Grace is God adding to us something that didn't belong to us. Jesus' righteousness. When God adds His righteous record, Jesus' righteous record to our account, He also adds to our account eternal life and real spiritual life. From dead to alive. This is what God has done. It's a work of God. Verse 6. And He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He took us from death to life. He took us from wrath, in verse 3, among whom you also once conducted ourselves, or we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, just like everyone else. We were children of wrath. Verse 7, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So He's taken us from death to life because we've moved from wrath to kindness. This is, this is just unfathomable. Now we know about it. We're, we're regularly reminded of God's grace and His mercy, His love, His kindness, and His goodness to us. But, but really when you think about it, when, when you really consider what God has done, it's still incomprehensible. It's still amazing to think about God's work of taking us from death to life. He's also taken us from separate to access, or from being separate to having access. Look at verses 10 and following. For we are His workmanship. That word there is poema in the Greek, and it has the idea of a work of art. A masterpiece. God has made us His church, not an individual. God has made the church His masterpiece. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we, the church, should walk in them. Therefore, 
Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what was called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. In other words, you were, when you were in your flesh, you were outside the camp. You had no part, is the idea. Verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And we have another one of those strange conjunctions in verse 13. But, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made both Jews and Gentiles, one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Why? So as to create in himself, that word create is bringing us back to that creation, back in verse 10, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So God is taking us from outsiders, having separation without God, without Christ, nothing. Far off. He's brought us near by the blood. He's broken down the middle wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. He's made two entities, Jew and Gentile, one in the church. One new man, thus making peace. Verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body. That's the church. How is he going to do that? Through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off. And he also preached peace to those who were near, Jew and Gentile. For through him, listen carefully, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So the picture he paints for us in verses 10 through 18 is before we were on the outside looking in. No fellowship with God. No part. No part in the promises. No part in God's people. No part of anything. We're out there. But through Christ, He has brought those who were outside and given us access. He's given us access. So from separate to access. He then tells us in verses 19 through 22 that he's taken us from distant, from the outside, maybe edges, from, the, from entering in to real intimacy. From distant to intimate. Look at verses 19 through 22. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. That's when we were distant. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. What we see here in this passage is God doing what we could not do. God taking nothing and making us 
something. God taking those who were at enmity, those who were filled with wrath and deserving of wrath, and giving us intimacy. And he has done it progressively, from death to life, from wrath to kindness, from distant to, uh, to close, from, from distant to intimate. Look at what God has done. And he paints it with three images. He gives us three images to really describe to us God's masterpiece, the church. The first image that he paints for us is this. God has made us part of a community. God has made us part of a community. We can call that citizenship. Look at verse 19 again. Now therefore... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens with the saints. Now he's used the terms strangers and foreigners and and similar terms in this passage on a couple of occasions now. And what we need to do is understand in the first century what he means by strangers and foreigners. Because he says we're no longer that. A stranger could be defined this way. Those who are allowed into a land for a temporary visit. Those who are allowed into a land for a temporary visit. Think about this. Here you are. You want to go visit X country. Whatever it is. France, Italy, Romania, Israel, Egypt, Jordan. Whatever it is you want to go there, you need to go get a a passport. A passport. So you go, get your passport, you're all cleared up, you buy your tickets, you go in, generally speaking, they'll let you in, you're good to go. You can't stay there that long, though. (laughs) You're allowed to come in, you can be a visitor, but then you have to leave. That's one one definition. He says, you're no longer strangers. You, You don't have just temporary visiting rights. Well, there's another group he describes as well. They're foreigners. You define those people as those who are allowed to reside in a community, but without citizenship. Hey, yeah, come, come be a part. You can't vote. You don't have the privileges of citizenship, so you don't 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 lose track here, folks. You don't get the benefits of like health care and all those things because you're not a citizen. I know. Don't lose track. <laughs> Talking about the first century here. In citizenship. Uh, in, uh, as a foreigner, you can come in, you can live there, you can dwell in the houses, you can do your thing, but you don't have all the rights that are associated with being a resident that is a citizen. But God says he doesn't leave us in a position as a stranger who gets to visit for a little while but has to leave. Or even as a foreigner who can stay there and say, you know, you're part, but not really. He says, you're citizens with the saints. You're, you're part of this. You have all the benefits of being a part of this community. So God has made us part of a community, and it's a beautiful thing. We have the rights and privileges that are associated with citizenship. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, for our citizenship is in heaven, and we're looking for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's going he's to change our vile body so that we won't look like this anymore, and we won't feel like this anymore, and we won't think like this anymore. He's going to change it all. We have a a citizenship, and it's not based here on earth. It's based in heaven. So God has given us this picture. The first image he paints is, we are part of a community. We have citizenship in God's country. Like, Like the people of old who were looking for a city who had foundations. 
Who built it? God. It's real citizenship. This is beautiful. We've gone from outsiders to now we have citizenship. But he, he takes us a step further. He doesn't leave us as, hey, listen, you can be part of this community. It's, it's a good deal. He paints another image for us, and it's one step closer toward intimacy. We are part of a family. God has made us part of a family. We can call that kinship. Now, when's the last time you talked about your kinfolk? Probably not recently. But you know, you get the idea. He's taken us from being out there without hope, without God, filled with wrath, dead in trespasses and sin, enemies. He's brought us in. He's made us alive. And now He's given us citizenship. And now He's made us part of His family. We're moving closer and closer, friends, toward intimacy with God. What is this like? What What does it mean to be a child of God? Well, take a look at Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. This book starts off with this praise to God. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And the only way that takes place is when we're in Christ, just so you know. That holiness and that without blame life only comes because of being in Christ. The the righteousness and holiness is His. Verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons. Sons. We were without God. We were without hope. We were strangers of the covenants and the promises on the outside looking in. And God says, I I did something for you I have made you into something and I've taken you from that distance and and I've put you into a citizenship, a a community. You're a part of my, my, my group. But, even better, I've made you sons. You're part of my family. Sons. How is that? By Jesus Christ Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved, or the Beloved One, the One who was loved. In Christ, again, this is what He's saying. The reason that we're acceptable to God as sons is because God, through Christ, made us fitting. It's amazing. God's work. God's masterpiece. God's creation. Sons. Chapter 3, please, if you would. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Who is he talking to? Our Father. He's talking to our Father. We are part of that family that is in heaven and earth. He's our Father. 
Now we can trace that all through the Scriptures. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and following. You'll, you'll recognize this. I think this is on the screen. It is. I don't know. If, can you read that? Is that the, the white type too bad? Okay, good. I was wondering when I was putting this together if you were going to be able to read that or not, and I did it anyway. What does that say about me? I don't know. I don't know. Romans eight fifteen and following. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out. What? Let's try that in a more unified way. We cry out, Abba, Father. What does that mean? It's this idea of my father, my, my dad. It is an intimacy. You know, when your children were small, I don't know what they called you, dada, mama, uh, daddy, poppy, I don't know what it is, but that, that term of intimacy, when there's just this little child and they're crying out, calling out to you because of their, their unrefined affection for you. The Spirit cries out within us. And thus we cry out, Abba, Father, I'm part of the family. To those who are outsiders, to those who, by our own nature, were children of wrath, just like everyone else, God has taken us from outside. And He says, you can be part of my country. Ah, you can be part of my family. And he takes it one step closer, friends, one step closer to intimacy as he paints one final image in this chapter, that of a building. God has made us part of his building. And we can call that workmanship. Look beginning, uh, beginning at verse 19 here, chapter 2, Ephesians 2, 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now we're just going to take this Kind of briefly, notice these these repetitions. Verse 20, having been built. Verse 20, being fitted. Verse 22, being built together. So we have this idea of construction. Who's the, the architect? God the Father. On whom are we built? Well, there are two entities that are being discussed. The apostles and prophets. Those are those that God blessed the church with with the revelation, and so we have the Word of God serving as the foundational element of the church, but all of that goes back to the chief cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ Himself. And so the church sits on a foundation of Jesus Christ and the the written Word, and then God builds on top of that those in accordance with Jesus Christ and the Word. Why do I say this is a step closer toward intimacy? Well, for, for citizenship, we're part of a country. We're part of, a, of an entity that is a grouping of people that, that have some political thing going on. And then we get to this family stage, and it's like, yeah, mom and dad and, and, and brothers and sisters, and we're, we're together. But then he does something very nifty. 
in these last few verses. He says, you're actually part of the structure itself. You're not just a member of the family. You're like right intertwined with God's very work. You're being built, being established, being fitted. God is still at work doing this thing. He's actually made us part of that work. Not just like a picture on a wall, an intimate part of what God is doing. This is what God has done. It's his masterpiece, the church. As you think through this imagery that he, he gives us, and we don't have time to really develop it fully, I want for us to recognize everything, everything in the building is measured back to the cornerstone. Everything is shaved, sanded, completely set up so it can be notched into this structure that God is making and it all heads back to that one foundation stone, the cornerstone of Christ. Everyone in the body is measured to Him. Well, there's a lot of implications to that, aren't there? Well, first of all, I need to be rightly related, right, so that, I, that God can be doing that work because God is the one that does the work. So my, my position is, here I am, Lord, do as you will. Place me in your, in your work. Place me in your building, however you see fit. And so there's this, this submission or surrender that comes in. But there's also something else that comes into the mix that it should, at least in our minds, is it's a comparison. As we look at ourselves day by day, we look at ourselves and we evaluate our mindset. We evaluate the way that we go through life. We evaluate our decision-making. We evaluate the attitude we have toward our children or toward our parents or toward our siblings or toward our spouse, toward our uh, fellow body of Christ, toward our bosses, toward our neighbors. We evaluate these things and say, Okay, Lord, my attitude is to be reflective of the cornerstone. I'm part of God's God's work. What does it tell us when our attitude reflects differently? I'm surrendering to another master. Surrendering to another master. I'm worshiping someone else. Generally speaking, that that someone else ends up being this guy right here. I, I choose to worship me instead of worshiping God. I choose what I like, what I think, what makes me feel better, what makes me feel good, instead of saying, here God, I I want your way. When we surrender our lives to Christ and we surrender our lives to the Spirit of God, what comes out? I know this is elementary. The fruit. The fruit of the Spirit comes out. Love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, faith, temperance. These fruits, these types of fruit that God exhibits through the Spirit. And it ties together here with our our consideration. As As we transition our thinking from Ephesians 2 as a as a way of 
thinking through our worship time to connecting this to our time in celebrating the Lord's Supper together. What is the Lord's Supper about? I always bring it to three things, right? Because it's what 1 Corinthians 11 does. We remember Him. Well, without Him, we're not sons, correct? Because we're sons in Him. Without Him, we're in our sin. Without Him, we we have nothing. So instead of being these... Uh, part of God's citizenship and part of God's family and part of God's workmanship, we were still on the outside looking in because of what Christ has done. He's taken us from enmity to this intimacy. And so we recognize what Christ's part in the Lord's Supper is because He gave His life as an atonement for our sin. But not only do we remember Him, we examine ourselves. What are we examining exactly? My life. I'm examining whether my life is truly yielded to my Savior. Am I really a follower of Jesus Christ? Or do I just want to claim the benefits? See, we sang a song, His Robes for Mine. This is great, beautiful exchange. He gets my sin, I get his righteousness. Well, he's also making an exchange, his death for your life. He purchased me. I'm his. And so I evaluate my attitudes, I evaluate my my walk with the Lord, I evaluate the way that I interact with other people, I I evaluate whether I'm, I'm yielded to the Spirit or I'm yielded to my flesh. What do we do if if we're yielded to the flesh, and we've been yielded to the flesh, as you evaluate your week, you're thinking, oh, this was wrong week to have this conversation. Maybe you're in that situation. Maybe you're sitting there, and you're thinking, man, if this were last week, I'd be in much better condition, but this week was a rough one. What do you do about that? Oh, well, I'm not going to take communion, that's for sure. That's not the point. What do we do? Recognize. Recognize your sinfulness. Recognize your yielding to self instead of yielding to Christ. What do we do about that? Well, the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sin, confess is to agree with God, to say the same thing about our sin that God says. We confess our sin. God is faithful. He'll do it every time. And He's just, because He already poured out His judgment on Jesus, to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We examine ourselves so that we can say, Dear Lord, dear Father, I have been yielding to myself instead of yielding to you. I recognize that this is not what you want from me. You confess your sin, and you re-engage in proper fellowship with the Lord. And when that takes place, we're ready. We're ready to to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We remember Christ. We remember Him and all He's done and all He is. We examine ourselves. And here's the third part. We all enjoy it. Then we have the, the bread and we have the cup. And they're passed around. And we're meditating as it's passed around. And maybe we're confessing our sin. We're remembering Christ. We're celebrating. We're celebrating what Christ has done. And then when it's time, when we all have our 
piece of the bread and we partake. You know what we're doing? Just like when we take the cup and we, we drink together, we're proclaiming his death till he comes. We're saying, I have a part. I have a part in him. When his body was torn, his body was torn for me. And I'm in him. My body was torn because I am in Christ. When Christ was bearing the the sin of the world, I was there in him. When he was buried in a tomb, I was there with him. When he was raised from the dead, I'm there with him. When he was uh, has ascended, since he has ascended into heaven, I'm there seated at the right hand of God the Father. I'm in him. I I'm part of this. We're proclaiming his death till he comes. He was his body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. This is all my hope. This is all my righteousness. This is all my song. This is what we do. So as we think through and in a moment we're going to pass the the bread out. And when that's going around, I, there are some things that we need to be doing. We have responsibilities to observe this in a worthy manner. The way that we do this is we're remembering him and we're thinking about Maybe the text of Scripture or, or, or something that the Lord is, is working on or, or has brought to, for rejoicing in our mind about Jesus. But we're also evaluating ourselves. We're analyzing ourselves. We're, we're examining ourselves so that if there is some area that we're holding on to, something we're not willing to give over to the Lord, it's time to do business with that and say, God, I've been struggling with this. I haven't wanted to give this thing up. I need your help. I want, to, I want to yield to you as my master. Take it from me. Here, I'm yours. And then, finally, after that confession and we have the, the element, that we're saying, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm, I'm part of Him. I'm following Him. I need Him. I'm yielded to Him. I'm proclaiming His death till He comes. This is what we're doing, friends. This is a beautiful time. This is an opportunity for us as a church body to have the most pure kind of fellowship. Because we, we will. When we're, when we're doing this, we're going to be right with the Lord. And then we, will, we must be right with one another because we can't be right with the Lord if we're not right with one another, right? So this, this fellowship that results from this glorious opportunity is sweet. It's sweeter than any other kind of fellowship that you ever get. So as we celebrate, we must think through this. Let's have the men come forward, please.